So I, we'd like to start. Would you, Mark, would you be able just to give us, we know everyone is super busy. Would you be able to give us a brief ministry update on where you are? Sure. Thank you, Steve. Uh, as some of you know, I have the joy of uh, giving leadership to the ministry called the Master's Academy International. Uh, we have uh, many schools around the world, pastoral training centers that were founded by graduates of the Master's Seminary. Today we have 17 members of TMAI. Uh, right now we have another 18 to 20 that are in the process of being established and hope, hopefully will come into membership the next five years. So these are fun days, really exciting days. Uh, I was talking to a brother at the break, just realizing he's been here 40 years at Grace Church, and uh, he's originally from Cuba, and uh, so we often just touch base what's happening in the Spanish-speaking world. But uh, what we've seen unfold over the last 30, 40 years as far as the reproduction of men who've been trained, who've gone out across the country, around the world, and then have kind of built into their DNA a commitment to raise up leaders to, to train them. Uh, our key verse is uh, 2 Timothy 2.2 that reminds us that we are to uh, entrust uh, ourselves to faithful men who then can train others as well. So that's the idea. Uh, just by way of a brief update, uh, I'm headed out this week to Mexico. Haven't done a lot of travel this last year due to COVID, but uh, headed down to Mexico, uh, the state of Sinaloa. Uh, down there, flying to the city of Las Mochis, uh, meeting a number of folks, uh, some you might recognize, a guy named Scott Artavanis, uh, a good friend, uh, as well as a number of other uh, seminary graduates who are ministering in different parts of Mexico. And we're all gathering for a pastor's conference for the purpose of looking at how to expand our training across the entire country of Mexico. Most of our ministry has been uh, centered in the, in the city of Mexico City. Uh, we have t five teaching sites across the city. It's a big city, a lot of people. Uh, we have an extension site in uh, Guadalajara, and we're now partnering with a new uh, Christian university that offers a master's in expositional preaching up in Monterrey, Mexico. And uh, what we're going to be doing in the Las Mochas area is meeting with a group of men who are church planting, who desire to be trained by TMAI. So uh, that's just one thing that's going on this week. Uh, there's a host of other things. Uh, one of the things that you can be in prayer for us about is uh, we're studying right now how we can be more effective in training pastors and church leaders in restricted access countries. Uh, one of the things the Lord has enabled us to do uh, through the, the supporters of the ministry has been to expand our um, foreign language translation and publishing division. And uh, we had the great joy of being entrusted by our pastor with uh, his lifetime collection of, of books that he's authored by way of stewarding the translation of those and distribution of those uh, around the world. And so we've been working hard uh, to position ourselves to maximize that. But what that means is, in addition to the courses our guys teach, uh, a lot of that now, because of Zoom, is being recorded by way of video. Uh, the books that are being translated in different languages, uh, are, we also are securing not just the print rights, but the digital rights and media rights. Uh, we're looking at audio books as well. And so we expect in the next five years to have more content in over 30 languages than we've ever had access to by way of our ministry. So the question is, how do you steward that? Uh, and one key question we're asking is, how do you make 
that content and those resources available to places where we can't travel or establish a, f- a formal training center where we, we can't hang our shingle out publicly. Uh, and so we have a four-pronged strategy to equip and train uh, pastors in restricted access countries. And that's not limited just to the Middle East, but it's across Asia, parts of Africa, and other places. I was reading a report uh, recently published in Christianity Today uh, that looks at the data from Open Doors Ministry that studies uh, what's facing the persecuted church. And um, they were just making the observation that uh, in every region of the world that we work on, there and there are a number of countries characterized by persecution and restricted access. Almost all of them are languages that we're currently working in. And so you can pray for us as we think about what we could do to come alongside the growing church. I was talking to a gentleman not long ago who's working uh, on behalf of the Farsi-speaking church, the Iranian church. And if you've heard any reports, you know that uh, the church is really expanding there. A lot of people coming to faith in Christ, being baptized. But what that means is the pastors and leaders of those churches are first generation. They're new converts. So what's on our heart to do is how do we come alongside folks in that situation who come to faith in Christ, have no access to any kind of formal training, and how do we simply uh, be good stewards of what's been entrusted us to serve that church? So there's a lot more I could tell you, but those are some things that are on our hearts and minds this week. And, uh, we welcome your prayers. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Han, would you be able to just give us a summary of where you are? Uh, yeah, well, you know, personally, uh, I'm, I'm so thrilled to hear about those initiatives, and it's exciting to be a part of a church that has so much like that going on. In my own life, as a, as a layman, I uh, started a new job a couple of months ago. It's a smaller company with a little more responsibility, so if you think of it, I'd love your prayers, just that I would be a good witness there and that I would do a God-honoring job. Uh, and, uh, you know, Heather and I are continuing to just uh, lead our family, and it's a joy for us, and uh, we just love being involved in the work of the ministry here and just among the people of Cornerstone and, uh, you know, just uh, as a layperson, again, just that even that joy to be here and just to strive to be faithful and consistent, uh, just to be practicing the one another's in the body of Christ. Uh, again, that is a rich joy of our church. And uh, as a personal update, that's, that's what I have going on. Uh, a few other things, but uh, I think I'll leave it at that and we can answer some questions that we've received. Please pray for our elders. They're a gift to the church. They do so much. We, have, we see only a small portion of what they do. So please Pray for them. Pray for them by name. So let's start. This is the first question. We live in a sin-cursed world. Could you give us practical ways to daily resist temptation? Wow, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, in terms of this issue of temptation, maybe I'll start, Mark, and you can add some thoughts. But uh, the thing I really want to emphasize is 1 Corinthians ten thirteen states, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And so that's the first thing I would emphasize is hope. And ultimately, some people may be so trapped in temptation or in a, in a besetting sin that they may think, oh, I'm the only one suffering from this, or I must be some kind of freak. But that's not what the scripture says, that there is... There are people, and your, your sin is, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
And, you know, you, you, I would urge you to reach out, to be humble, to seek help, and just to seek accountability with your fellow brothers and sisters, and, and just to, with your church leaders, your Bible study leaders, and, and to really, uh, if this is truly a, a, a temptation or besetting sin in your life, that, that's so important. And again, to have the hope that God has provided a way of escape, and, and really that's so important to remember, because, you know, just other verses in Scripture we talk about, Temptation. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That we can resist the devil. And often that's one way of temptation. Another verse is 1 Corinthians six eighteen: Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And so, again, these are ways to resist the devil, to flee temptation, and how you actually apply that in your lives. Again, this is where the body of Christ and the one another's is so incredibly important. And this is where, again, if, if you're a man suffering from temptation, have a group of faithful brothers in your life who you can go to and say, hey, I need some prayer right now, even, you know, just to really be involved and to be in that, to be in that kind of situation. If, if you're a woman, same, you know, just there, there's great accountability, certainly with your spouse, but there's also Titus 2 speaks about the importance of men to men and women to women ministries. And again, you know, I would urge you to have these types of relationships in your life where you can have that. But, you know, sad that, of course, you know, you want to be praying. You want to be soaked in prayer, on your knees prayer. You want to be, you want to be just focusing your mind on the word. You know, there is this uh, situation, this tragic situation with the Atlanta shooter. And I don't even want to mention his name because I don't like to dignify uh, these criminals with, with the use of their name. But it was this horrible crime, this mass murder that he committed. And, you know, there are all these questions that arose because he, he, he had been a professing member of a relatively conservative Bible-believing church. And all these questions had been arising. And, and you know, it just I actually happened on Friday morning to be speaking to a man who knew this troubled uh, criminal and you know just he he was saying that he knew this this man very well and uh, this man had long time struggled with sexual sin and uh, sexual immorality and uh, the advice he had gotten not from his church but from some strange parachurch organization was to to wear this ostentatious medallion around his neck And, and then anytime anyone asked him about this ostentatious medallion he would then recount uh, the struggles with sexual sin that he had. It was just, just it was a crazy story to me. And, and, and again, when we think about it, it's like the solution is not to wallow and dwell on your sin like that. It's not to idolize in the shape of a medallion your sin. It, you know, the, the solution is to put off your sin, to renew your mind in Christ, and to put on Christ. And, and again, this, this hope of Christ is ultimately what we have to be focusing on when it comes to fighting temptation. If we just focus on the putting off, that is not enough. That, that, you know, again, Hebrews is so beautiful when I think about this. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down victorious in that way. And so fixing your eyes on Jesus is so critical, and you have to remember that when you're fighting temptation. Thank you, Han. Very helpful. Yeah, it was excellent. Thank you. Um, 
Just to complement that, uh, and, and to repeat, first of all, what he said is there's great hope for us. Remember what uh, Romans 6 tells us by way of that imagery of baptism. We've been raised in newness of life. You may not realize this, but you're living the resurrected life today. You don't have a new body yet. You're still going to wrestle with the flesh in that sense. But uh, Galatians 5 tells us that if we walk in the spirit, we will overcome and we will have victory. So there's always hope. Sometimes you lose hope, don't you? And um, you need to be reminded of that. And, and we see that often in the New Testament. I just would add this. Um, my mind goes to Colossians chapter 2, where Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the wor- world, rather than according to Christ. And the battle for our purity, our holiness, is a battle in the mind and the heart. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? And he had a really famous saying, didn't he? It was, the devil made me do it. And um, a lot of Christians kind of live with that idea that the temptation is out there. And we know that Satan is prowling around, and we know that there are temptations in the world system. But the reality is we contend with indwelling sin that we're being perfected to overcome by the renewing of our mind, which then transforms the affections of our hearts. It's According to James 1, Harry's been preaching through this. If you go back to chapter 1, it's when lust conceives, right? And you entertain that thought, then sin, you act on that. And so the battle is really whether or not we think in accord with the mind of Christ revealed in his word or according to the thinking of the world, right? And that's what Colossians 2 is getting at. Don't be taken captive by the philosophy of the world. Uh, Years ago, when I was at the university uh, in our orientation program, I would talk to the students about how, how to live a life that is distinctively set apart to Christ And I would say the battle is um, what occupies our our thoughts and minds. And uh, I would use this analogy. Um, You know, we're sitting here, and we're accustomed to hearing preaching from a pulpit, right? But you realize there are many pulpits in our lives. And uh, for a young person, uh, one pulpit is going to be their classroom. And if they're in a classroom at a a public uh, school or public university, they're hearing Colossians 2. It's the philosophy of the world that is shaping their thinking every day. But then you have another pulpit, don't you? And that's popular media. And that's the music that's playing. It's what's coming across uh, the TV, certainly now with technology or phones, social media, and on and on. It's a 24-7 barrage of Colossians 2, the philosophy of the world that's coming at us. And when you add up all the different places, the marketing that comes at you in every venue, uh, whether it's watching an athletic game and it's the billboards or the commercials or whatever else, the penetration of the world's philosophies in the Christian mind is almost overwhelming. And so to what Han is saying, if you're not practicing Romans chapter 12, and that's the transformation that comes from the renewing of your mind, think, just add up the hours, that a typical person is exposed to the, all the pulpits, including the pulpit of the church. And if all you've got is one hour on Sunday morning or maybe two hours on Sunday morning against 60 hours of content that's Constant. coming at you, then you're overpowered. And so just practically speaking, I was convicted of this 
I, I have tended to be a, a, a news junkie. And after the election, I, I just swore off the news. I couldn't take any more personally. Um, <laughs> but it used to be my custom just driving down here to the office. I'd, I'd listen to the news. And part of that, I need to know what's going on in the world. But I, all the rancor and all the d- divisiveness and the attitude, I'd find myself getting worked up and caught up in all this, right? Some of you are nodding. Uh, it's hard to escape, isn't it? And I thought, you know what? I've never been good at really um, uh, setting up an archive of good uh, iPod, um, I'm sorry, podcast uh, and things like that to listen to be purposeful. And so I just have worked hard in the last six weeks to be a lot more intentional to fill that dead time with things that are constructive. And it's amazing how it's encouraged my heart. It's changed my outlook on the day. It's just helped me. Um, Meditation of scripture is something that we're supposed to do all throughout the day. Um, Maybe looking carefully at what you view more regularly. And just keep in mind that intake and, and creating more balance or weight on the spiritual side because we are in a battle. And you've got to be fueled up to contest and, and to have discernment against all that stuff. You can't escape the world's influence. But you can mature your grid to filter all that through so that even when you hear it, it's not seeping into your heart or your thoughts. You're, you're able to push back and kind of reject that. Uh, the gym I go to, I can't stand the music that they play. And, um, and, and so when I'm working out, and, and a certain song comes on, I'm like, I don't want that in my mind. I try to uh, quote scripture in my mind, or I try to, try to do something to combat that influence. And so what I'm trying to say is it gets very practical. Um, but if you're only giving the Lord an hour a week or two hours a week or that, that drive-by devotional you know, for five minutes, uh, you're going to find yourself struggling with temptation because you're not really strengthened for the battle. And um, the battle is in the heart and the mind. And uh, again, the hope is we're going to be made complete. He's doing that work now. We're living a resurrected life. Uh, again, Romans 6, uh, another practical way that Paul talks about it is don't yield your instruments to unrighteousness, but yield them to righteousness. That includes your eyes and your ears. Okay? So hopefully that helps. Thank you, Mark. Next question we have is a very real question. It's a real-life question. Family members who say they are Christian but refuse to reconcile with, with others, what would you encourage the person? How would you shepherd them? Well, I would immediately say, you know, Romans twelve eighteen is incredibly helpful, and I would point you specifically to a sermon a few weeks ago by uh, Josiah Grauman, who preached on this, and it was so powerful, uh, especially the ending uh, of that sermon. I'm not going to spoil it to you, but it talks about this concept. But Romans 12:18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And uh, think about that. Galatians 6.10 also says, do good to all people, but especially to those of the household of faith. So if you have a Christian brother or sister, putting aside even family, but if you have a Christian brother or sister, how important is it to 
do good to all people, but especially to the household of faith that you strive to reconcile. For Christ has forgiven us, and you know how much should we forgive? Christ even said seventy times seven times, which is uh, really a metaphor for uh, you know an unlimited number of times, essentially. And so I think that we are really called to reconcile with one another in the body, and you know really uh, uh, that that is so critically important. And you know. To the so far as it depends on you, in some translations, to the extent it depends on you, that you need to be eager and willing to reconcile, and you know just to to have that attitude. And now, uh, you know, in extreme cases, and we have talked about this at the elder board uh, with conflicts in the body of Christ. I think that if there is a a person who is completely unwilling to reconcile who is refusing to reconcile, then that would be a matter that would be appropriate even for a Matthew 18 type of confrontation. And yeah, it would be patient and there would be time given, but ultimately there needs to be this desire. And I can think of one uh, person uh, in, the, in a few years ago who ultimately, uh, you know, uh, ended up leaving church. But, um, you know, that was an active discussion in that regard because of this refusal to reconcile. And, you know, in terms of family, biological family, I think, again, that, that imperative is, is also there because we know that, uh, you know, um, again, this is in the context of provision, but he who does not provide for his own family or his own household is worse than an unbeliever. And so, again, there is a concept of provision here, but you can certainly, I think, by analogy, extend that to the concept, how can you be providing for your own family spiritually or practicing the one another's if you're not reconciled with them? So I think there is a special emphasis on the importance of reconciliation within the body of Christ as we show a picture to the outside world of what it means to be forgiven in Christ and also within your immediate family. So I think that's a biblical imperative. And again, with all patience, uh, there, there ought to be a willingness in that regard. Yeah, uh, I appreciate the question. Lisa and I are living this in a couple occasions in our own lives, and this is the question we're contending with. Um, what does it mean to have a relationship with a family member who professes Christ but doesn't demonstrate um, the fruit of the Spirit in their own lives? And, and so you, don't, you can't break your biological relationship in a sense. They will always be brother, sister, you know, cousin, uncle, aunt. But the most essential thing for all of us, and it's the principle that Han pointed to in Matthew chapter 18, when somebody's put out from the body of Christ, it's for their good. The reason you treat them as an unbeliever is what's at stake is the authenticity of their faith. This is somebody who's been professing Christ, but their behavior isn't consistent with it. It's not just their behavior, but it's they're not repentant. A true believer confronted, approached by somebody else who, who by statement, again, again, living a resurrected life, they've been baptized, they're, they're identifying with Christ, but if their life doesn't reflect that, then it's a very dangerous thing for them to continue on in the body professing Christ and no one addressing that and they think they're saved because they will stand before Christ as judge one day and he may ask them to depart from him because they never knew him. So the most important relationship apart beyond body of Christ and beyond biological family is a relationship with Christ. And so uh, with a family member, how do you maintain a relationship yet at the same time make clear to them that while you love them, your greatest concern is that they know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the most loving thing to do is to make sure that you make that clear to them. Okay. Now, the wisdom that is required 
by way of patience and forbearance. It doesn't mean that every phone call you're screaming the gospel at them. It doesn't mean that you're always threatening them. Um, it, it means that you have to walk wisely with them. Sometimes it is necessary for there to be some distance or separation. That person feels the impact that our relationship is not right. And, and you extend the offer of peace and forgiveness. But I'm talking about somebody who's not willing to repent or ask for forgiveness or accept that. Um, you, you don't need to pretend that there's no relational impact there. There is relational impact there. But you can affirm, I am here. I will always be here. I'm ready to be reconciled. And I long for you more than anything to have a right relationship with Christ. And, and when you can, bring the gospel forward in that conversation. Other times, you know, you, you sense they have, they're not a listening ears. You, sometimes we can provoke people if they're such in the flesh that just hammering away at the gospel is actually provoking them. And so you're praying for those listening moments where they have a tender heart. Sometimes that comes in crises, doesn't it? And so always be ready, particularly when that person is facing crisis, to be available to them. Uh, that's a great time and occasion for you to demonstrate the love of Christ towards them. Even when they know they've offended you, they've sinned against you, but they can count on you, continue to serve them sacrificially. Um, so just some practical thoughts. And Listen, I, I don't know. We don't do it perfectly. It really requires great wisdom and, and faith in the Lord. But those are some principles. Yeah, and I feel burdened actually just to even uh, launch off what you said in terms of uh, if there, if you are a party that has been sinned against by another member of the body or another family member, it is right and appropriate to address that in terms of dealing with the reconciliation. You know, so when I gave my general statement at the beginning of this question you know, t- about the importance of reconciliation, I stand by all of that. But again, uh, each situation can be uh, specific and have certain uh, nuances or issues. But again, if there is a situation where you have been sinned against and that person is trying to wield the reconciliation hammer in a way, it's like, oh, well, you need to reconcile. It's like, well, you first need to reconcile with me in terms of repenting for the sin against me. And again, depending on the nature of that sin, this may again be an appropriate situation to involve uh, leaders of the church or Matthew 18 even, depending on the nature of that sin. So I don't mean to make a broad statement of overall applicability without also kind of uh, adding that important um, point. So reconciliation, patience, love, and always being ready to give the gospel. Well, and I think just... um, in addition to that, because I appreciate uh, what, what um, Han was saying, to an unbeliever, the willingness to extend forgiveness is pointing to the gospel. And so if you're not willing to grant forgiveness and yet you want to hammer away at the gospel, that's inconsistent, right? And so you want to, when, when you see movement on their part, you know, you understand the difference between forbearance and true forgiveness. Forbearance, we're all called to bear up with one. And we live with sinful people all the time. Does that mean everything is a matter of conflict resolution and, and so forth? No. You just you demonstrate grace, you forbear. But when there's a clear offense that needs to be corrected and addressed, and that person is willing to acknowledge that, uh, boy, move towards forgiveness quickly. And then let that be something that points to the ultimate forgiveness that's available in the gospel. 
So a follow-up question which just came in. Is there at any moment when you just say the relationship is finished, you shake the dust off of your sandals and you move on? Well, John got asked this question a while back at a Q&A, and um, his answer was, yes, there is a point in time. Um, and this is probably the most challenging matter to discern where it requires real wisdom. Sometimes we want to shake the dust off and move on um, because it's too painful for us or it's just demanding too much time on our part or we're frustrated or we're tired of the hurt, and right? Those are all selfish motivations to do that. If it's unproductive to them to continue to extend an offer where that's what I was trying to say earlier, there's no sense of any impact relationally, then that can um, be counterproductive because that person is just taking advantage of the relationship with no consequence to it. Um, And so sometimes you just realize at this time, this is not the moment that the spirit of God is bringing them to a place where they can see their sin and, and, He's doing the work in their life. And so you remain available in a sense of when they're ready to talk, they're ready to pursue. But um, sometimes I think it's it's like casting pearl before swine. There's just not a response there. And it doesn't mean that you just have to continue foolishly extending yourself and not saying, look, there's a line here. And I'm not going to enable you any further. And you think it's okay. And I think, uh, you know, as someone uh, who came up through singles ministry, uh, you know, my wife and I had been, well, I had been involved in singles ministry too and alongside singles for about 13, over 13 years. And, you know, the example I gave in this context is, look, if you've got a couple and they're dating and then they break up, uh, you know, certainly, um, you know, you want to see reconciliation in the sense that the Lord willing can be in the same room with one another and greet one another with joy. But that doesn't mean they have to get back together. Right. The breakup, it's like it is what it is. And sometimes if you break up, you know, one of the parties says, OK, well, that means reconciliation means we have to get back together. It's like, no, it does not. <laughs> you know, and it's just and I think a helpful framework here is threefold. Uh, there's forgiveness which is unilateral, and you can offer forgiveness to someone in your heart, even if that person, even if you never see that person again, or like, you know, uh, just uh, that, that's a situation you can unilaterally grant forgiveness to someone. Reconciliation is bilateral, you know, in terms of at least being at peace with one another, as it says in Romans twelve eighteen, that you can greet one another with, with joy, Lord willing. But then there's a third step, which is restoration. And that is over and above reconciliation. And that doesn't always happen. And, and I, would, I would posit it doesn't necessarily always should happen, you know, depending on the situation. And I think, you know, there can be a situation in a marriage, for example, where if there's a situation of adultery in that marriage, you know, certainly, Lord willing, there would be forgiveness and even reconciliation. But there, there may not be restoration, depending on the circumstance. The, Jesus himself said that adultery is cause biblical cause for divorce if a person is so is determined to take that route now again we hope and pray that there would be a genuine restoration even in spite of that adultery lord willing and yet you know again jesus does provide that that is uh, one reason for a biblical divorce would be adultery so in some cases even though we pray for reconciliation there may not be restoration of the marriage in that situation Okay, that's really important. Can you repeat those three? Yeah, so there's forgiveness, which can be unilateral, regardless of the other person's attitude or behavior. 
There's reconciliation, which is bilateral, which, again, both parties to some extent need to be willing to reconcile. And then over and above and beyond that, which does not always happen, and, and again, in some cases should not happen even, there is restoration, which is putting everything back the way that it was before. And, again, I gave the, the breakup of the dating couple as one example of that. So forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration. We have a few questions concerning our church. The first one is, will we ever go back to two services? <laughs> it's a great question and a common question. Um, I'm not sure if we know yet, candidly. I, I think we're still working through it um, as elders. Uh, I, I will say I have a personal viewpoint on that, and I'm happy to offer it. My, my personal viewpoint is I actually like it at one service. And, uh, you know, I, I think that kind of what we have now is a more traditional, I would say, baptistic kind of Sunday school hour followed by the main service. And I, I like it for several reasons. First of all, you know, I do sense that there is, a, you know, there, there just I think throughout this year, we've seen a sense of energy and excitement and enthusiasm. And I think that's for a whole host of reasons. But I do kind of, you know, on a sheer preference level, I like that in terms of one, what one service does there. Uh, I think a more kind of theological reason I like the one service is, during this time of everybody saying, okay, well, you can do Zoom uh, ch- church service or remote services forever, you know, or, you know, for as long as you want. And that's the same thing as church people are claiming, some people. And, you know, I reject that utterly. And if you want another excellent resource, uh, Why We Gather Together by Abner Chow was preached several months ago, I think for a uh, kind of morning when we were all doing the one morning service it's excellent, and it kind of outlines the importance of gathering together in one place, as Abner says, as he goes through the Greek and the teachings of the New Testament uh, relating to the church. And, uh, you know, I think that's so important. And I think even as we present to the world the importance of corporate worship, I mean, so often people talk about loving your neighbor, but forgetting before loving your neighbor, we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the picture we present to the world of the importance and priority of corporate worship, I think, is so critical as part of our Christian witness, by the way. But part of that is, I think having one service adds to that sense of priority and emphasis. Like, look, at the 1030 hour, we have one service. We are, this is the corporate gathering of the church. And we love our Sunday school classes, but, you know, this is the corporate gathering. And I think having that priority on the corporate gathering, I think just even as a um, kind of what we show to the world, I think that's really helpful on, a, on an emphasis level, especially in this time period that we're going through. And I would add a third thing, and this is the least important thing from his perspective because he's the most self-sacrificial person that I know. I personally love that we are able to give our pastor the opportunity just like to preach once on a Sunday and, and not to have him do it multiple times. And, you know, just I think that helps the grace to you folks in terms of they can focus on uh, mastering and, and getting one service up and ready onto the website without trying to figure out which of these two uh, different versions, slightly different versions to put up. Uh, but even just blessing our pastor, who, remember, is 81 years old going on 82 years old. And if we can bless him in this way, if we can show him double honor by having single service... Why not? You know, I mean, boy, and again, this is the least important factor for him. But for me, as uh, 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 someone who loves him and cares for him and wants to bless him, 
you know, I, I personally really appreciate that single service. And I, I hope you would consider that as part of the kind of um, uh, equation when you're thinking about this. And yeah, you know, I know it's required some adjustment on our part. But uh, look, it's, uh, I think it's actually worked out quite well, personally. That, again, speaking as a matter of my own opinion. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I don't have anything to add. We, we also have a few more questions specific to our church and also to the church up in Edmonton, Canada, for James Coates. Mm. So could you give a quick summary on where we are concerning the litigation against Grace Community Church as well as any updates for James, <laughs> Pastor James Coates? I'll defer to you. Well, um, yeah, the litigation, uh, again, we're kind of slowly grinding along in the litigation. I think we have another hearing coming up in early April um, you know, I will say that the Supreme Court case that was decided a while back that allowed indoor services, I think it was touted by many people as a big win for the church. Uh, I'm not quite so certain of that because on some level that decision uh, also affirmed the government's ability to uh, put limits and restrictions on corporate worship. So I'm not so convinced that that's a clean win, if you will. I think that, uh, you know, on some level it's emboldened the state of California. Um, So in terms of our current court case, what we may see happening, and this, again, the, the pace of litigation is slow, and all the more so during this time of coronavirus. Uh, the courts are clogged up. They're backlogged. Things are going even more slowly. It may be that this case ultimately is dismissed as moot, which is to say, you know, we get to a point where things are opening up again. You know, it may be kind of a moot point on some level. But uh, I, I am a little bit concerned about that Supreme Court case for the reason I, I indicated. So the, the state might take certain positions that, no, we're allowed, to, we're allowed to restrict you according to the Supreme Court in these various ways, so you need to do it. And uh, so that, that would be a cause for concern for me on the area of that court case. But we'll see how it goes. I think that in some level we may run out the clock, if you will, and uh, maybe that's okay. But, you know, we're stu- certainly aggressively fighting it. We're, we're aggressively, um, you know, litigating it, and we'll see what happens. Uh, on James Coates, my understanding is that his lawyers uh, had a great victory the other day, which is convincing the, uh, the Crown, the prosecutors, to drop most of the charges, all except one, which I think both parties want to litigate. And Lord willing, and please pray, it was supposed to be this last Friday, but it's been kicked to tomorrow. Lord willing, he will be released tomorrow. So please pray earnestly for that, and that he could be released uh, until the actual trial. Um, It's really ridiculous because the thing that he's charged with is punishable by fine, not by imprisonment, as I understand it. And I don't have a uh, I'm not a Canadian lawyer, so I don't have a perfect understanding of it by any means. But my understanding is that the the base offense for which he's being charged was a fine offense, a fine based offense. So they wouldn't be able to imprison him. And yet to hold him during all this time for all these weeks and going on months uh, really seems unjust to me based on my understanding of the actual law. They mentioned this morning that his wife, Erin, has had a couple media appearances. Was it uh, Tucker Carlson and I forgot the other? Ali Stuckey on her podcast, I think, interview. She, Erin Coates, his wife, is very articulate, and she's had a number of these uh, appearances. But apparently she uh, – I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but apparently she did a great job on the Tucker Carlson show uh, a couple of days ago. So look for that if you are interested. One of the things that kept coming in to my – my phone is COVID. What lessons would you say the evangelical church has seen 
through COVID this past few, this past year, actually? Man, that's that's a big question. Mark, what do you think? Sure. <laughs> I think we all have been refocused on the sovereignty of God. I think we all have been challenged to rethink our view of submission to authority and the authorities of the church and separation between different spheres of authority, which is good. I think until the American church uh, itself was challenged, we've been able to always just see it as one. The government and view of the church that we were in agreement for the most part as far as our our liberties in that regard. And now we've been forced to think more carefully, uh, biblically, uh, about that. And I think that's been beneficial. I think we have all been pressed in our marriages, our families, uh, in our nuclear families, our extended families, certainly the family uh, of Christ, to deal with the issue of differences and how to live in an understanding way with those who have differences and to strive to make our thinking more based on truth than anecdotal information, maybe fake news or whatever information that we have. We've been forced to contend with how, how do our convictions drive our thinking, and we've had hard conversations. I think uh, the biggest threat in COVID has always been the issue of unity, where there's disagreement on how to contend with the restrictions practically, uh, um, legally, uh, biblically, and it's strained the church. It's strained relationships. People have migrated from one church to another, people on Zoom, not on Zoom, uh, mask, no mask. And so maybe like nothing else we've ever had has been this constant daily point of potential uh, uh, contention and every decision we've made whether it's eating out or it's planning an activity with family or for your work event or i mean it's just constant isn't it and i think the biggest threat in covid other than um the freedoms of of the church uh which are very real has been the threat to the unity of the body of christ and I would just say, uh, what's on my heart, is if as a result of COVID and dealing with it and your viewpoint and somebody else's viewpoint in your sphere of relationship, there is something that is unreconciled and that has caused separation between believers and there hasn't been a genuine effort to say, look, let's make sure that we can still demonstrate love and commitment to one another even though we have differences. We still all may have some work to do. Uh, My concern as a church body is people well, frankly, who aren't here this morning that maybe fell through the cracks. We worked really hard to try to touch base and make sure we knew where people were at. But but it's one thing to say we're committed to one another, and then somewhere in COVID, people just disappeared from our lives, and we haven't made any effort to pursue them and reconnect. I can respect a difference of opinion, and that led them to make a different choice, but I want them to know I love them. Amen. And I'm committed to them. So those are just... Mark, that's great. Simple. And I share that. I mean, my desire throughout this process has been to try to love and minister to and care for people of as many different convictions on this as possible. And again, that's been a goal of our church is to provide different areas, you know, where you can sit even different, different venues in different situations where you can worship corporately in a way that would meet with your convictions. And, you know, I do desire that unity and I desire to minister to, uh, you know, my brothers and sisters of varying degrees. 
So I would say that is a huge point. My personal view is a little bit um, from from the COVID crisis of this last year. I, I take a little bit of a different personal view in terms of uh, what I would say as a key message. And that would be that the world is coming for Christians. And I think we're seeing that more and more in this society as this society moves into a post-Christian kind of environment, if you will. And it's going to be increasingly difficult for Christians, biblical Christians, to maintain true to the biblical convictions that we see in the Bible. We are going to be pressed on. We are going to be accused of all kinds of crazy things. You know, this, you know, oh, you don't love your neighbor. And, you know, to, to take a general command like loving your neighbor that is very individual and subject to the individual calling and stewardship of each individual as they see fit and to try to pigeonhole that into a very narrow, oh, for you to love your neighbor, you need to do what I think you should do. And, you know, it's very specific. You have to do this. And, you know, that, that is in its more extreme forms a form of Phariseeism. In its most extreme form, it can be a type of Galatian heresy where you are adding works to the gospel. You know, it's like, oh, in order to be a true Christian, you need to do what I say. And, you know, we see that more broadly with some of the social justice discussion as well. But regardless, you're going to see, you know, I I was talking to a really well-known, well, I should say, um, there's been a couple of situations where uh, people have said that... uh, you know, Christians aren't going to necessarily be persecuted for being Christians in this country. They're going to be persecuted for being, quote unquote, racists, misogynists and sexists or homophobes. And that's that's going to be the accusations leveled at anyone who holds to a biblical view of certain topics. And I think we need to be ready for that. We need to steel ourselves to gird ourselves for that. And I think we need to be strong and courageous, as it says so many times throughout the scriptures, and ultimately to stand for Jesus Christ in a time where doing so will be increasingly unpopular. And to me, that's uh, a key message of this whole COVID crisis. I I have one last question, and it's for Steve Kondakshian. And uh, Steve, if you could please uh, tell us what's been going on at Northridge Bible Study, which you help lead, as well as in your own life uh, ministerially. Timing-wise, it's perfect because the concept of the world is coming for Christians is exactly the next verse we're going to study this Thursday. Ah. Um, Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let no one say that Christ has not, is not preparing us, is not preparing the Christian for what is to come. Let us be strong, let us be girded. Um, just to say that I do have the privilege to co-shepherd the Northridge Bible study with Mark Curry. If anyone is close to Northridge, we'd love to have you as well. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Han. Very clear, very helpful. Mark, would you please close us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, we start off by talking about how to resist temptation. And sometimes the temptation comes in just uh, yielding to the pressures of the world. Sometimes uh, responding out of fearfulness uh, to those pressures, whether it be our personal witness and testimony, whether it be uh, temptations to the flesh, whether it be uh, taking a stance uh, to be cor- courageous. Um, we are reminded this morning that in our weakness, you make us strong. You give to us all that we need to be found faithful through, through the indwelling work of your spirit, 
the testimony of your word, and the encouragement and accountability and support of fellow believers. And we pray that we would be good stewards of these three uh, tremendous and, and essential resources in our lives that we might be found faithful in the days ahead. So we commit ourselves anew uh, to Christ as our Lord, and we pray that we would live that truth out effectively this week, and we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.